Hey guys, Jack here. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We're approaching the very end of the Just Hands Across America tour. I'm heading back to New York at the end of the week. Uh, right now we're in California, and at least one of Zach or I, not sure if it'll be both of us or one of us, uh, will be playing uh, Live at the Bike uh, in L.A., and that's a Thursday. You can go to their website, and we'll post a link in the show notes uh, in order to watch that. That'll be Thursday night. We'll be playing in a, probably a pretty mixed in terms of, you know, some fish, some really good players, uh, either 510 or 51020. Uh, check that out. Uh, we'll be repping the Just Hands gear in case you don't recognize us. But yeah, check that out. Thank you guys for tuning in and enjoy this week's episode. Hello? Hey. Hey, how are you doing, Jeff? Good. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, hear you well. Can you hear us okay? Yep. Is this live? Uh, it is definitely not live. So okay. <laughs> feel free to uh, say whatever you want. We'll edit out what we don't like and, you know. Try and make us all sense fire. No, no, nothing to nothing to worry about. Just wondering. So yeah, usually uh, with guests, we like to kind of just jump right into the hand and then kind of do our interview conversational section after, as it's kind of hard to go the other way around. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'll we'll do our little intro stick. We'll give you an introduction, and uh, we'll get right into the hand. Okay, um, when I go through the hand, should I tell you my thoughts on each street at the end, uh, my buddy's thoughts, who's at the table with me, when should I go into those things? Yeah, we're, we're going to probably stop you at least once per street and kind of have a conversation about each decision point. So. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, all right. Not a problem. Let's do it. Hello, Zach. Hey, Jack. What's going on, man? Enjoying this mediocre view from the Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino. Yeah, I will say the, you know, the far view is really nice, the mountains, but the close view. Uh, I'm surprised how many big empty lots there are this close to the Strip. But what do I know? Uh, anyways, our room is great. The action has been great, and we have a great guest with us today. Uh, Zach, do you want to introduce him? So today we have a man with over $600,000 in live tournament caches, someone who crushes the win, low buy-in events, and a recent move to YouTube in the vlogosphere, Jeff Sluzinski. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. So we hear you have a hand of live cash for us. Yes, uh, about a month ago, my buddies wanted to play a little cash on the strip on a Friday night. No tournaments going on, so I decided to have some fun. I'm uh, not the best at cash, but I have a pretty good idea of what's going on. I, you know, it's poker, whatever. Uh, so we sit in the 2-5 no-limit game at the Venetian. I have a stack of $500. Under the gun, plus one opens, who appears to be a 30-something reg-looking character. Definitely looking... I've only been playing for about an hour, but he seems to be more competent than the rest of the table, which is more recreational. He opens to $20, under the gun, plus one, folds to me in the big blind, and I look down at ace-queen offsuit. Thoughts? This is one of those hands that I think could go either way. I think... So the effective stack is 500 
Uh, yeah, 500. He is maybe 700. Okay. And so when you say he's competent, is he sort of competent in sort of a tight, not making many mistakes way, or has he shown sort of a capacity to bluff? Is he playing a lot of hands? Do you have any more details about his play? I don't have too many reads, but just from I've gathered from live poker, you can tell a lot about a person just by the way they stack their chips and the way they put their chips in the pot, just the fluidity of it, I guess you could say. Um, I haven't seen him in too many hands. He's just been pretty pretty tight aggressive, I guess, but he just looks like a reg to me. Okay. Well, you know, against a rec player, or even, even a reg, I normally default to three betting when it seems close. You know, keep our range strong, take the initiative, especially when we're out of position. So I think I would just go ahead and three bet here, uh, make it 75. Yeah, I think it's close, but a three bet's probably a bit better. The, the times that I like to flat here are maybe against players that are playing, you know, a bit too many hands, but will fold a lot to three bets. Um, or maybe like a competent player raises and like a fishy player calls, and then you know you kind of want to see the flop and keep the the player behind in. But I think in this spot, uh, go ahead and three bet. Okay, I think uh, looking back, I believe my first instinct was three bet, like I would in a tournament. But based on the the player type, I didn't want to really inflate the pot out of position, and I wanted to be under repped uh, going to the flop. So I decided to just call. Okay. I do think there's definitely something to being under-repped, like if your opponent's not going to give you credit for a hand like ace-queen, you know, based on whatever reason, that's going to be really valuable. Uh, so, so I think there's definitely some merit there. Um, I, I guess I think, yeah, we don't want to inflate the pot out of position, but I do think there's something to being able to just win the pot now out of position. That's a nice outcome. We also want to be inflating the pots with our you know, best value hand. So it's, you know, weighing that versus being out of position. Okay. Okay. Um, well, we call 20, 40 bucks in the pot and the flop comes queen, 10, nine with the 10, nine of spades. I do not have a spade. I think I should always check my whole range here. So I check he bets $20. Think about raising, but I think uh, board's a little bit too wet for that, and I want to stay stick with my uh, under-repping trap philosophy. So I just flick in the call. 20 bucks. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah I think this is a pretty <laughs> clear call. Uh, we, we can get value from worse by raising, but I think we also get three bet a lot, and sometimes it's a bluff, and that's not fun. Yeah, this hand's just you know, not strong enough to get it in 100 big blinds deep on on this type of flop against this player type. So I like the call. Okay. And I wanted to just, uh, my plan is pretty much to call down if it comes brick, brick, or possibly raise at some point if I hit a queen or an ace. Yeah. Uh, so the turn brings the seven of diamonds, pretty much a brick. Um, Jack eight already was there and I don't think too many two pairs are in his range. I check and he bets $55 sizing up. And, uh, I don't think there's much choice other than just, uh, sticking with the plan and giving it the call. Yeah. I think you have a pretty clear call here. He can definitely be value betting worse Queens, 
Um, yeah, I think we have a, a clear clear call. Okay, because yeah. I, I, I figure he'll still barrel like uh, ace-x flush draws, maybe a pair, pair and straight draw like jack-10, queen-jack, and I'm getting value from those. Yeah, king-queen too, I think. Ace-queen, yep. you know. Uh, all right, so the river. The river brings the deuce of club. Total brick. I check, and he bets $125. Yeah, I think we have a, a pretty clear call. Okay. I've had, uh, I discussed this with uh, my buddy who was at the table and a couple other buddies, and they've had very differing opinions, uh, mainly the, as the river being the, the toughest spot. Yeah. I don't think it's an extremely clear call. I think there's there's definitely a case for folding. I think a lot of opponents of this player type are going to check back. A lot of the hands they were betting on the turn that we beat, there are plenty of hands we're losing to. We block a lot of his value range, you know, the queen nine, queen ten, uh, queens. So I think we also block aces. So this is a, a reasonable hand to call. Not having a spade is in our favor. I think... We probably shouldn't be folding. We have fairly good odds, but I don't think it's a, a totally clear call. I think there's at least a percentage of the player pool of this sort of, you know, stereotype that almost never has a worse hand than us here. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think the reason why this is a call is just, you know, with the reads that you have at the time. Uh, but I'm definitely with Jack in that there's a lot of reg types here that are just completely under bluffing on this run out. So. Okay. Um, some of my friends quotes were, what is he value betting? King Queens, the only thing you beat. What do you think about that? I, I, I don't think he, I think we're calling not because he's value betting worse, but because he has bluffs in his range. If, if you don't, if you don't think this guy who seems like, as you described, a competent reg is ever bluffing here, then you have a very easy fold. But yeah, yeah you're, you're calling to beat his bluffs, not to beat his value bets. And you chop with ace-queen, which is uh, going to add some kickback to this call. You know, I don't think we're expecting to win that much more than, you know, the odds we, or the amount we need to be winning to make this call. But I, I definitely think it's likely that we're going to get enough back. Uh, and we don't know that much about this player. It, there's There's also a chance that he's going to be just bluffing relentlessly it's unlikely but it, you know it factors in a little bit to this decision and i honestly think like you know sometimes if i'm like triple barrel bluffing with the intention of getting like a just like a draw to fold on the river i'll i'll bluff for like a smaller sizing exploitatively on the river but this is the type of board where like a lot of your draws also have pairs so i think if i'm in this player's spot just you know potentially giving this player maybe a little too much credit Maybe he's thinking, okay, this guy has a lot of draws and pair plus draws in his range, and 125 is enough to get him to fold all those, you know, second pair, third pair, and brick draws hands. So, okay, uh, pretty much my friends uh, who play more cash than me said fold the river uh, because there's not many combos of bluffs. What is he just barreling with other than like ace jack? And you have an ace, um, and, like check back probably jack ten or. Queen Jack and maybe and probably just only value bet King Queen. But I told him, you know, I'm 
near the top of my range, so I have to call. I'm just underwrapped. The plan was to just check call, brick, brick, sticking with the plan. Yeah, and I, I think ace-jack is a very clear possible bluff. Uh, I think ace-king is also the type of hand that sort of amateur players will go overboard with bluffing sometimes, uh, especially in a case like this where he has a gut shot and maybe he feels like since you have just called two streets and you flat a preflop, it's very unlikely you have a hand stronger than king-queen. So I wouldn't be so surprised to see ace-king here. Okay. And, and once those hands become possible, then it becomes like a slam dunk call. Because hmm. we're, if we're dealing with you know, all combos of ace-jack and ace-king, that's a huge amount of bluffs. And I also think all ace-queen is fairly likely. And even though we have ace-queen, there's a queen on the board, that's still a reasonable amount of combos, a lot of king-queen. And so even you know, the hands we're losing to, king-jack, queens, uh, tens, nines, queen, nine, queen, ten. Uh, those get outnumbered pretty quickly once you throw in all these king, all these jack. All right. Results? <laughs> Results? You lost, right? <laughs> uh, obviously, of course. Every hand you want to review, you lost. It's not a, usually not a brag, but uh, yeah. yeah. He turns over the, we put in the call. I uh, didn't like it too much, but I just kind of, like I said, just like, yeah, sticking to the plan, brick, brick. And he flips over King Jack offshoot for the flop nut straight. Yeah. And I uh, discussed this with a, another friend recently when I was preparing this hand uh, for this segment, and he was uh, actually ber- kind of berating the my my opponent in this hand for not betting more on the flop. He said it'd be better for him to bet more than twenty bucks on the flop when yeah. he has got King Jack here to you know get more value. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, I think he kind of let you off the hook, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, the river sizing was more appropriate, which is, you know, in fairness, normally a pretty big tell. And I think that's mo- mostly what your friends were probably, you know, grasping onto is that that size is rarely a bluff from a rec player, which I, I think is true. But we have good odds, and I also think, you know, you could you could make the same counterpoint and say, you know, the fact that he only bet $20 on the flop, you know, makes it less likely he would have a hand like this. I mean, basically, I think sizing tells are valuable, but they're not a guarantee. And, you know, you should have a really good reason to fold the top of your range. And I don't think you had quite enough of a reason to do so in this spot. Okay, I feel like he'd play a hand like Pocket Kings pretty similar to... You said you... You feel like he would play, or you would play? He would play, and yeah. but with a flop sizing turn, river, and since I have ace queen, I have reverse blockers to the king king. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think you're losing the king king a good amount. Is it a standard open under the gun plus one in a two five cash game with king jack off? Do you guys, or you guys just fold that? No, that that's that's definitely not a standard open. I'm I'm folding that. Um, you know, barring some type of, you know, very good table. So I think this definitely, like, you know, there's some, you know, much nittier regulars where I'm never three-betting ace-queen here because they just don't, you know, they don't have ace-jack. They don't have hands that we, we dominate. They m- might not even have king-queen offsuit. Uh, mm-hmm. But against a guy who's opening king-jack off, you know, if he's open opening a ton of, you know, broadways that we dominate, 
um, then, you know, like after I see this hand at showdown, I would then be wanting to, you know, three bet him pretty aggressively, both, you know, with value hands and, and with bluffs after seeing that he's opening too many hands. Um, okay. And I think this is going to be common at like live cash, a lot of like reg types and like two, five, two, five pros that just, just play too many hands. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm definitely sometimes guilty of this, but I, I feel like I try to only play too many hands when it makes sense for me to do so <laughs> and that I'm not going to get punished for it. But I think there's a lot of players that just like kind of have hands that they're used to playing and want to be in a lot of pots with people, so they, they play too many hands, especially from early position. And they're sometimes punished for it, but not enough to alter their behavior. And I think you want to, you know, you want to be the one that just really really punishes them because they're also probably not the type to four-bet bluff. Yeah, I think almost no one except for very elite players is compensating enough for position in their opening ranges. I think it's it's worth discounting some hands, you know, from any position from a player like described, uh, as well as giving him more hands on the button. But I think you're, you're talking more like a difference between like 15 and 25 percent of hands, rather than you know 8 percent of hands from any position and like 45 percent of hands from the button. It's a really small adjustment compared to what it should be. Uh, so I'm not surprised to see this type of hand from any position, even though I would definitely fold it. Okay. All right, so again, the pro justifies the bad call by a rec player by saying he's at the top of his range. And well, he's not a rec player. No, no he's a he's a reg. Yeah. He's a reg. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is he a reg? What is a reg? I think is sort of an ambiguous term in my in my mind. Uh, okay. I mean, I, every time, pretty much every time I'm playing a tournament at the Venetian, he, he's coming in to cash. He never really. I've seen him play one tournament. And I talked to him uh, actually last week. He just happened to be sitting next to me in this uh, day two of a tournament. And I asked him about, you know, you tournaments much? And he said, no, I just cash. And I called him a reg, and he kind of smiled like, yeah. And he's like, oh, you live here too? You just play tournaments? Mm -hmm. But I don't know, just, I'd have, I'd have to, I'd bet that he's a, a winning cash player, I guess. But I don't really know too much other than that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, I think, I definitely have a thought of what Jack is saying in terms of like reg being a bit ambiguous and that, you know, there's people that play regularly that are yeah. terrible. There, there are people that play regularly and are there to win and are not good and are losing players. There are people that, you know, play 30 hours a week and have full-time jobs and are break-even or winning. And then there's, you know, uh, people that are giving, going pro a shot and are break-even in those lineups. And then there's, you know, good live cash pros and they're, they're all playing at the casino regularly. Um, okay. so what I got from, from what you were saying is that this guy seems like someone who's at minimum, like, you know, kind of a slightly winning player that's at the casino regularly and may or may not be a professional. And that's definitely influencing how I, you know, do this hand against, against like an amateur player read list. I think this, this river can definitely be a fold. Okay. Um, I mean, off air, if you want, I can uh, tell you his name because uh, he placed in that tournament uh, that I just busted in and with with his picture on the Venetian uh, Twitter account. Oh, I mean, we 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 it matters. <laughs> not really. I mean, we were. I was just kind of mentioning it because you know it doesn't matter what you know after the hand, but more of just like you know yeah. making the best decision given the information you had at the time. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I try to, you know, I assume are better players in cash and tournaments and just uh, try to target the recreationals. But, you know, folded, raised my big blind and you know, took, took the more low variance route. But I, I, I'm not sure it's lower variance to necessarily call in the big blind. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I think it's almost definitely higher variance to call in the big blind. That being that being said, it's it's probably like you just want to do the most plus EV thing generally, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you know against against a player like that, uh, he's probably going to be folding a good percentage of the time. Like I think in these in these three bet pots, it's it's a lot of him folding pre flop or you know you betting the flop and him folding the flop. And have you like uh, looked at how much difference uh, your your long term profitability will be um, as an advantage of three betting? Because if you take it down pre, there's no rake. Definitely, that's a a much bigger factor. I think outside of Vegas, I'm not sure exactly what the rake is at the Venetian. Um, it's high. It's high at the Venetian. Yeah, I think it's one of the highest rooms. It just got increased uh, a few months ago, and now. Probably not at the time of that, but they have their like bad beat jackpot or high hand giveaway also. So yeah, it's, it's an extra it's four dollar. Plus, it's four plus one, right? Uh, I think so. Or yeah. oh, okay, or people was, were complaining they they lowered the comps too to like a dollar an hour instead of two. Yeah, I I, I know it used to be two dollars an hour with just a four dollar, with just four dollars. But like, from what we're used to playing in, especially some underground games, four plus one is seems pretty good. <laughs> okay. Uh. I mean, that's a factor. I, I think the reason Zach is making this statement that pre-betting is going to be lower variance, which I don't think is certainly true, but you have a lot more outcomes like you win the pot here, which is a great outcome. Uh, you get four bet by a very strong hand, which is a is a pretty good outcome. I mean, you lose $75, but you're doing really poorly against most of those really strong hands. Yeah. And so we, we avoid some reverse implied odd situations. And then the, the other outcome is that you get called and you have a range advantage going to the flop against a player who's probably a little bit too tight and isn't going to bluff enough. And I think that's not a super high variance spot to be in and generally very profitable. And so that's sort of why I default to three betting with hands like ace-queen offsuit in the big blind uh, is that I'm not worried about getting four bet bluffed and that's like the big deterrent, really, because when we get called, I think generally we're not gonna like we're not gonna stack off that often and be wrong when we get called. I don't think that's a huge. I don't think that's a very large percentage of the whole range of outcomes. Yeah, and I think people like even like some of the better two five professionals are just playing way too straightforward in three bet pots. They're probably playing too straightforward in non three bet pots, but especially in three bet pots. So you'll maybe see a lot of like you three bet him and he calls and he probably has like a pocket pair, maybe like ace queen or ace king. And then, you know, you're able to play, you're able to take down, you know, flops where you both miss. You're able to take down flops and sometimes turns, you know, where he's holding a second or third pair type hand. Like there's just a lot of really great outcomes that can happen when you're in a three bet pot and you're the the pre-flop three better because people are just, you know, under bluffing and under defending on a lot of board textures. Yeah, I agree. Uh, in tournaments, I, I three bet a lot more out of the big blind with premiums and uh, like suited six gappers just so I can take the initiative and have the range versus range uh, perceived advantage. 
So even if they do call, my CBET will work uh, more than enough times to make it profitable. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that logic definitely applies in, in some form to cash, too. Okay. I mean, the main difference being that uh, you have worse, much worse odds in cash, so you should probably fold your six cappers in <laughs> bluff raising with a, a slightly stronger range. Yeah. Uh, I, that, people get that wrong a lot. I, I'm amazed, like, that concept that's sort of become really... I mean, it's correct, but it's also become really popular and more widely known in the tournament scene of, you know, you should defend your big mind really widely uh, because you're getting such great odds. People have taken that and just, like, applied it to cash just totally incorrectly. Like, it's just a, a hugely different, like, event when you get raised, like, 2.2x, like, on the button, and there are antis in the pot, and you're in the big blind, and the effective stack is, like, 15 big blinds versus you know, under the gun plus one opens to five X and it folds to you in the big blind and you're calling with like Jack seven offsuit. Like that's not, that's not a good play. There, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of like kind of tighter players that I've been seeing in these games more in two, five than five, 10 that, yeah, it's like four or five X and they have, you know, like a 10, six suit. And it's like, okay, well I have to see a flop. And it's like, you, you really don't have to see a flop with that hand. Yeah, they got reverse implied odds with the deep stacks of cash games where with antis and short stacks and tournaments, you can realize your equity a lot better. Yeah, much Just better. check, shove, or not have to worry about 100-plus blinds getting in there bad. Yep. Uh, so I'm going to enjoy the next couple of years while people <laughs> figure that out. So, Jeff, is there anything you'd like to plug for our listeners? Um, There's a few few things i'm working with right now um got a kind of a deal with pokertube.com where i wear their patch to tournaments and i do uh, youtube live uh, interviews or hangouts whatever you want to call them about four per month i'm also releasing uh, wsop tips for different casinos different tournaments to play those will all be featured on pokertube.com i did a little promo for crush live poker uh, you can click on my affiliate link in my newest vlog on YouTube. I vlog under the name Jeff Boski, B-O-S-K-I. And uh, 9 to 5 Poker is also a great site that features all the Las Vegas tournament vlogs. So you can keep a good track of the new ones and just get to know the people behind them. Awesome. So Zach and I are cash players, you know, almost exclusively, but... We are putting in some study into tournaments, and we're planning on playing a couple events in this year's WSOP. We're also in Vegas right now. So wanted to ask you, you said you write about WSOP tips, general Vegas tournament advice. What, I have a few questions in, in this sort of you know, range of topics. One, we're in Vegas a few more days. Are there any really fun you know, fun structure, uh, daily tournaments to look out for during the week in Vegas. Um, two, what do you think are the best tournaments to play when you bust out of your WSOP event in Vegas during the summer? Uh, the best daily tournament, I'd say, is at the Win slash Encore Poker Room. Uh, it's a $140 buy-in. It's lowest rake, best service, classiest casino. Um, other than that, Venetian and Arya are your second and third best choices for daily tournaments for the $100 to $200 range. 
as far as World Series of Poker, uh, if you bust out of the noon event, uh, the best val uh, I guess yeah, best value, most upside, and softest competition would be the daily Rio Deep Stacks, which starts at two o'clock every day. You can late reg till four p.m. Two hundred and thirty-five dollar buy-in during the uh, middle of the World Series. First place will range around forty to fifty thousand dollars because they're going to get over a thousand people. Uh, it's re-entry. And uh, yeah, like I said, the players are just terrible. Unfortunately, you'll be in the pavilion room with the the worst set of dealers possible. Shout out to the dealers, <laughs> but you, you got a set Ivy tilted by the the lower life forms of humans you'll be playing with, and the the slower, less competent dealers. So if Man. you can get past that and run good at about 4 a.m., if you don't chop it or you can get a very favorable chop because these people never get to final tables. Um, you can, you're looking at five-figure score for sure. Nice. And that's got to be one of the most tilted tournaments in America. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody's just mad. <laughs> yeah. I, I played that. That was my second-ever live tournament. And I got out in the third level. Uh, I chipped up to, like, 600 big blinds. <laughs> And my opponent had me covered. He was one of these guys that was just like staring down everyone, just like so <laughs> aggressively, probably playing 60, 70% of hands, and was just making really obvious bluffs that just kept getting through. Yeah. And I got it in with top set versus a gut shot, and then I went home. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my experience with the Rio, Rio Daily Deep Stack. But d despite the bit of a tilting outcome for me, it was like, it was almost kind of hard not to laugh at that tournament. It was like going back to what I hear 2004 must have been. And this was last summer. Yeah, if you can uh, stay focused and uh, run good, you can definitely have a great time just crushing that tournament, especially the money bubble. And uh, like I said, chop negotiations. People are just so eager to chop. But I would, you know, not to be paranoid, but chopping any event at the rio they don't facilitate the deal like the win or venetian any caesar's property will or will not uh, adjust the payout so it's you're trusting the person to pay you at the cage which usually goes well but you know gotta gotta protect your own neck so you might want to just not chop or agree to sign for first if you don't care about the tax purposes and um divvy out the money yourself yeah, that's some some serious pro advice right there. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, we talk in the cash world about like, you know, your five ten game breaks, uh, and you go move to two five, and it can be challenging to you know approach a lower stake with the same level of vigor. I've got to imagine that, you know, busting out of like a a fifteen hundred event or even a bigger event. And then moving immediately to like a two hundred dollar buy-in, you could you could encounter the same set of issues. I'm I'm wondering if you have any advice for us, our listeners, about your routine or just your mindset moving uh, down in stakes in a tournament landscape very quickly. Uh, you just have to be grateful for the opportunity. Um, it's you know human nature to be tilted when you bust a tournament. I know many. People that will come into town or go to their local casino, uh, play a $200 tournament bust, and then you know hop in the 2-5 game, and they think they're playing good, but they're they're never going to be playing their A game right when you bust out of a tournament just because your your emotions won't let you. 
you want to gamble, you, you just play better. I, I could see the same thing, and that's maybe why the, the 235 deep stack is so great, either because it's people that can't afford to play the 1500 and they're not elite enough to compete in that field, or they're people that played the 1500 and now they are playing a 235, so they don't care as much and they're not going to play as well, or they're just going to punt it off and just try to gamble. So as long as you can stay mentally stable and you know ch- cherish the opportunity to possibly win 40 grand in a $200 tournament, then then you're going to be ahead of the field. Right. Uh, I think that's great advice. So you obviously brought on a cash hand. Uh, what does your volume look like in terms of cash versus tournaments at this point? Uh, usually, usually only tournaments because uh, I don't know cash. I'll like occasionally play on dinner break if I've already ate at like a win tournament just for 30 minutes. Um, I've been playing some one, two PLO at uh, encore and that's been fun. And I think I have a a decent edge in that just from my online background. I used to play a lot more PLO back in the day when poker stars was around heads up some six max. And I just have a better idea of, you know, basic PLO concepts like blockers and what hands are actually good, you know, compared to just, Oh man, double suited. Got to play it. Mm-hmm. Do you guys play PLO at all? Yeah. Mostly cash. I've never played any PLO tournaments. I, I saw in your hand and mob that, uh, you've had some success in PLO tournaments. Do you think those are going to become spread more often, uh, as the game grows? I hope so. They're, um, just the general feeling of the tournament environment and the people playing is just so much more jubilant. People are happy to gamble. They're not tilted after a bad beat. They're just like, oh, fuck it. It's a flip, you know? <laughs> oh, I can re-enter. Uh, compared to No Limit, where people are just staring you down, and the pace of play is a lot quicker in PLO tournaments. Even though you get more cards, they're just like, oh, pot, repot, all right, run it. That's it. Yeah, um, but but pot control is a lot more important in PLO tournaments compared to cash games. Uh, Limping's a lot more acceptable, and uh, not needing to actually pot it and choose your sizing because you're going to be uh, shallower as you get deeper than in a cash game. And uh, tournament life is clearly more important, so you want a lower variance a little bit. Right. But yeah, yeah the PLO tournaments are super fun. Uh, I definitely recommend you play the. Uh, 565 PLO event this year at the Rio, and I think the win has won, maybe, and Venetian has won. Or half PLO, half no limit. Just just, just switch it up and uh, just avoid the Europeans, play against the Americans. You should do all right. <laughs> yeah, Zach and I were saying that I think round by round is the best form of poker. It's, especially in cash, like, I, I actually think PLO cash tends to play slower especially outside of vegas something about the people in vegas like they just like to take their time and (laughs) man it just it just tells me but outside of vegas where i think the hold'em plays a little faster you have the the action of plo coupled with the speed of hold'em and i just think it makes for a really nice game so i'd imagine that a a round by round tournament would be a lot of fun yeah, there, there's definitely at least one half-and-half half, uh, PLO No Limit at the series this year, maybe 1,500 buy-in. And I think it might even might even be six max to make it even even sexier. Yeah. What would be awesome is like a tournament where like it was holding them up until the final table and then it switched to PLO. 
Oh, with uh, ante. Yeah. Yeah, throw some antis in there, too. But no, in PLO, it's crazy. Some some of the deep runs I had, you can just be card dead for hours and not play a hand. It sucks, but you barely lose any chips because there's never any antis. Yeah, and the I would I'd imagine the same mistakes people are making in cash in terms of just playing way too many hands is true in tournaments and probably just going to see a lot of people bust out uh, just for really stupid reasons if you just you know, play pretty tight. Yeah, a lot of just hand selection. I, I remember my deep run at the the five last year. People were saying, "How do you? Why are you doing so well? You know, not hating, but what you know? What's kind of your secret to keep crushing these PLO events?" And it's just like just starting hand selection. It's, it makes so much difference post flop when you're just cooler in people and they're chalking it up to a cooler when they shouldn't have like played the hand in the first place when they don't have a nut suit. They're playing, you know, queen ten. Eight five, <laughs> like, like yeah, it's connected. I can make all the straights. I'm like yeah, nah, not really, <laughs> not any good ones. Um, other yeah. than that, just uh, just reading board textures and just uh, playing playing the nut draws and watching out for set over set because it's you know a lot more likely than people think, especially in multi way pots when everyone's limping. Yeah, I, man, we just played uh, some really. We've been on this long road trip playing poker across the country we spent some time in houston and played in some really soft plo games that my favorite moment uh when i early on when i realized how good of a game i was playing uh so, someone had like a got it in against like a, an older player who like clearly had the nuts on a jack seven deuce rainbow board and he he tables a king queen ten eight and he's like yeah i had a wrap i couldn't fold uh, <laughs> I was like, dude, you had a gut shot. What the fuck are you talking about? Uh, was that an uh, underground game? Yeah, it was an underground game. And there was also a, a time where, like, this guy, um, Jack, he was only there for, like, two hours. But he basically, like, I think had, like, a backdoor flush draw, not to the nuts, and, like, a pair of sixes, which was, like, second pair. And was, like, kind of short-stacked. I guess put in like 80 pre and had like 200 left and it like got back to him and he just kind of got it in. <laughs> hmm. Gamble. Yeah. No, I, 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 I've played definitely more PLO than Hold'em cash over the last year or so. On this trip, it's been more Hold'em. Um, but yeah, I think, I think PLO is great. Um, it can play really slowly sometimes, but the type of people playing and the conversation at the table, like if you were to just like look generally speaking at like a PLO game versus a no limit game without knowing which one is which you're going to you'd say the PLO game looks a lot better. What are your thoughts on running it twice versus running it once and what do you usually do? It depends. I generally try and run it twice uh just to lower my variance as a live professional uh and the PLO game since sometimes play really big. But I think yeah. if my bankroll was larger I would very rarely run it twice in, in certain games because I think that uh, it makes people fold way too much equity if they know that they're it's not gonna it's not gonna be run twice. But the c converse can also be true in that like some people are like, well, we're running it twice, so I'll probably win one, and then make bad calls. So I, I think it kind of depends on the player types. But there's I think there's good reasons for professionals with large bankrolls that play PLO to to do both. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm personally against running it twice just because it just slows down the game. I, I don't like to see other people run it twice. It's just less hands per hour. 
And I think people get will get less tilted if they get stacked or if they just keep chopping the pots mentally, it won't affect them as much. Have you ever played have you ever played the Rio uh two five time game? I have, yeah. It's a great game. I played that last yep. summer. Oh yeah. <laughs> Amazing game. I got absolutely slaughtered, but it was it was some really, really good action. And yeah, I think you just highlighted the reason why in my mind I try to run it once when possible. Or for like if I'm playing one two PLO and the stacks aren't that deep, I'll try to you know, I won't really run it twice. And that's because PLO's great because everyone's just kind of always tilted, you know? Some guy will like run up five hundred to like three and a half k, and then he'll lose one k, and he'll be tilted. You know. <laughs> yeah. And that, a lot that of tilt, Yeah, that tilting happens a lot, a lot more when um when you get stacked. Yeah, that's my favorite game to play. If there's like a long dinner break at the Rio or something, I got some time to kill. Just hop in that for a half hour. You can time it right, so you don't even have to pay pay the rake the eight, right. eight bucks an hour or whatever and. What's the buy-in? $100 min, no max or something? Yeah, 200 min, no max, frequent button straddles for 10. Okay, yep, that's right. Yeah, Or, or they could do uh, like 20, too. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it can go up to 25. Yeah, it's like, okay, okay, I got it. <laughs> You can short stack it, you can deep stack it. There's a lot of different ways you can approach it. Yeah, on the topic of like running it twice, slowing down the game at this... <laughs> this card room in Houston, there were like so many options once uh, the money got in. Like one, they did insurance, and <laughs> you also, if you were on the bad end of it, the house gave you the option to sell the insurance yourself, which is great wow. actually. But um, and then like you're allowed to like negotiate, like you can just like take take money back out of the pot, like if you guys agree to it, just you just like take back a hundred bucks or whatever, and so you get these. Like five minute just like negotiations of just like you know are we gonna run it twice like do we want insurance like who's gonna it like takes a minute and a half for the one guy to like decide he wants the insurance take another minute and a half for the other guy to decide that he wants to sell the insurance like they have to like show you like this is how much you're agreeing to lose if you sell the insurance. <laughs> wow, that's horrible. And the other thing I forgot about was dealer error. If a pot gets quartered or chopped, they, they can they can mess up and. If you're not paying attention, you can get the raw end of that deal. Yeah, there were a couple times where like the dealer was clearly going to get the decision wrong, and one of the players had to had to step in. Uh, like, yeah, like running it twice in PLO, and like just guys don't realize they have backdoor flush draws or like backdoor straights that they hit. Yeah. How do they run the equities? They pull out their phone with an equity calculator or something for the no, insurance? No, How's there's like for? a big poster with like the number of outs. And like what? odds, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> they don't they don't do insurance for PLO because it's too complicated. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And yeah, I've I've heard those Houston uh, or any Texas underground games are really juicy. I, I might know a guy that deals one of them. Yeah, it's just the rake is unbelievably high. Like, it it took a lot to justify us sitting that game. Okay. Uh, yeah. But is there like free pizza and like hot free food, girls yeah. giving you free massages and uh, stuff too? Not, not the latter. But the yeah, there's free food. <laughs> okay. Typic, typically, like at least in my experience, like more in New York underground games is like there will often be like attractive women that offer massages, but like it's not free, mm-hmm. or it's technically free, but you're expected to tip like very, very well. And yeah. 
I'm sure there's games where it's actually free, but then I'm sure the rake is just like absurd. Gotcha. Are you guys going to play a tournament in the next couple of days? I think we're planning on it. We're here with a couple of friends. It seems like a fun thing to do. I almost never play tournaments, and you know, considering that we're planning on playing a few, you know, slightly larger buy-in tournaments this summer, I think getting a little bit more live experience under my belt would be nice. I used to play a lot of tournaments online back when that was a thing, but but since then, yeah, I, I've, I'm definitely out of shape in terms of tournaments. Need to test my uh, retainment of snapshot conditioning. Yeah, it's a great app. Fifteen bucks. Yeah. I'd recommend uh, Encore for that. $140 daily, 200 on the weekends. And uh, for the World Series, uh, obviously the, the bigger the field, the softer the competition and the more money you can win. So the Colossus, the Giant, 888, all those you know theme tournaments are going to be the best value, I'd say. Right. So will we see you at the win if we're there in the mm-hmm. next couple of days? Uh very unlikely. I'm usually pretty busy during the week. I usually only go there for the the Saturday 225 rebuy right. that I had great success in. But yeah, I usually only just play if there's like a tournament series. And but it's pretty frequently with all the Venetian events and um, win circuit events, Planet Hollywood, Bally's, whatever. And with the month of hell of June coming up, I'm gonna try to stay sane and not play too much leading up to that. Right. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. All right. Well, we might miss you this week, but I'm sure we'll catch you at some point during the series. Jeff, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to share with our audience? Any very general life advice, poker advice, just uh, some politics, whatever you want. Uh, (laughs) Well, let's touch on there. Uh, Got great news. I just... Open first ever website with the help of a guy from a nine to five poker. They designed it for me, jeffboski.com. You can find uh, links to all my vlogs and social media, um, coaching, stuff like that on jeffboski.com. As far as life advice, I would invest in cryptocurrency if you have extra money laying around. Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, sign up on coinbase.com. It's a gamble, a very volatile one at that. So uh, if you can't handle the gamble, I probably shouldn't do that. But it's probably better than keeping your money. So I'm, I'm curious, Jeff. I, I've invested a little bit in this space and been, been reading about uh, mainly Ethereum. What, what makes you advise people to invest in cryptocurrency? Uh, just It seems to be the, the future of uh, doing transactions, it just seems like a more practical way instead of having to deal with wire transfers. Um, Ethereum, I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm definitely no expert, but from what I gather, Ethereum is different than Bitcoin because it does uh, like these contracts where it's like almost like computer programming, a if then statement. Like I could say, uh, prop bet you $100. If you do this, then $100 will be released into your. Ethereum coin will be sent to you and that's just built in so for gamblers like us on a smaller scale it can be very useful on a larger scale for selling houses uh, large corporate transactions across countries with almost zero fees kind of the same thing as Bitcoin but supposed to be a lot more uh, complex but 
user-friendly. Same thing with Litecoin. There's a big thing called the SegWit activation today, which is supposed to make all transfers four times faster and just improve the whole process. And as long as, you know, the government doesn't step in and really try to sabotage the whole system with like they did with dark web and uh, just give it, you know, uh, a pedophile got caught, you know, you know, with some Bitcoin. So all pedophile, all Bitcoin owners are pedophiles. They might try to put a little spin like that on it, but I really just think it's the natural progression of how we use money as a currency. And it's just an agreed upon thing that we can just send from our phones or our computers and uh, just makes a lot more sense. Okay. Well, on that note, Jeff, thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you uh, during the series. Great. Really appreciate you having me on. It was a great talk and a little cash hand, and uh, thanks again. Yeah, have a great day. Good. Bye. Bye.